Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, the Bible, um, which is the code of ethics, the code of truth in which we live by as Christians. Uh, Father, it is the message that we declare. And uh, Father, I pray that you would give us uh, the wisdom to know how to discern it, um, the, the courage to know how to speak it, and uh, Father, most of all, the character to live it. Um, and so, Father, I pray that as we dive in today, that you would help us with all those things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me uh, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> this is the third week of a series called I Love My Church, and the reason that we have uh, a series called I Love My Church, the reason that we even have shirts that say I love my church is because uh, we hope that you really do love the place that you attend and that you are a part of the body of Christ. But even if you love your church, I mean beyond belief, you just love it. You and I still can't love our church near as much as God loves his church. And God has a, a great purpose and a plan for his church and the whole idea of this series is to awaken us as the members of God's church, his body, his people, to not only the truth, but also to knowing that we can't afford simply just to come and attend. There's so much for us to be doing. There's so much to be accomplished, and God needs every single one of us. Matter of fact, in the very first week that we were here and we started this series called I Love My Church, we talked about who the church is. And oftentimes we think of it as a building or a particular place, uh, but the church is a people. It's a people that uh, follow Jesus Christ as their ultimate leader. We're a family. Uh, we should be united in the body and that God uh, literally uh, has established us together under one faith, under one baptism. Uh, matter of fact, the Galatians chapter 3, 27 and 28 simply says this, for all of us were baptized into Christ and we've been clothed with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither, neither male nor female for all of us are one in Christ Jesus. And so we are the family of God. Uh, we possess a great hope, and we have literally one common enemy, and that's Satan, who wants to destroy us. And so we have to be uh, standing firm, we have to be on our feet, on our guard, and we have to be ready uh, to do what God's called us to do. Last week, we talked about how God has uniquely gifted the church. God has given every single one of his people a good gift, a gift to use within his body. He's given pastors and teachers uh, to help lead and equip people to use those gifts. That's the purpose of us as pastors. Pastors are not supposed to be dogmatic in nature. Uh, they're not supposed to be an authoritative figure. What they're supposed to be is a shepherd, someone who loves their people and wants to equip them to do the ministry of the church. And we last, uh, the last thing we saw is this, is that God is most glorified when all of the parts of the church are working and when everybody's doing their part. So that's the goal. That's why we constantly encourage you, hey, would you please consider getting plugged into a journey group with other people? Would you please consider serving within our body? Would you please make a difference as you go to work and to school and all the places that we go? Why? Because you're so important. And God has given you a story. Uh, he's given you things that you've overcome in your life. He's given you victory in many areas simply so that you could share with other people. And that's the goal. Now, the thing is this, he's, he, he's established his church as his people, he's given us good gifts to use, but there's also a message that he's given us to declare. And the message is similar to what he gave to Timothy. 
uh, through the Apostle Paul. And so Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy's a very good friend of his. Uh, Timothy's also the pastor of probably the largest church uh, in the New Testament. That's in Ephesus. Uh, he's the pastor uh, in the Ephesian church. And uh, he gives him an awesome word. And that's what we're going to look at today in 2 Timothy. So if you have your Bible, we're going to start in verse 14. And it simply says, <coughs> remind them of these things. So Paul's writing to Timothy, his best friend, and he says, hey, remind them of these things. What things? Well, just a handful of verses up, you see a couple of things. In verse 8, he says, remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, the Davidic king, was raised from the dead according to the gospel. He said, remember that Christ was raised from the dead, that he was resurrected. Don't forget that and don't stop teaching that. He also says, here's another reminder in verses 11 through 13. He says, for if we died in him, meaning we died in Christ to ourselves, to his purpose, to his plan, we shall also live with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. So he says, if, if you don't live for him, you, you don't uh, become established in him, rooted in him, built up in him, strengthened in him, overflowing with him, then he said, he'll deny you. Don't worry about it. He knows those who are his. And then he says, if we are faith, faithless, he'll remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So he said, preach the gospel, preach his resurrection, and preach faithfulness to him. Because God knows those who are his, and they should live according to the word. And if you deny the faith, Christ will never deny himself. And so that's what he's telling him in verse 14, to remind your church, remind your people of these things. Remind the Ephesians of these things. Remind the people that you're around serving with of these things. And then he says, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about with words. Now, wrangle, that's like a good East Texas word right there. You know what I mean? But the, the word actually is in the, the Greek, logo meheo. Logo or logos is where we get word. So he said, don't wrangle about with words. And then he says, what kind of words? And the idea of wrangle and the word logo maheo is the empty words. So he said, don't wrangle around with foolishness. Or, or just the idea of these trifling, empty arguments. Impious thoughts, so to say. He said, so many times in our churches, we, we wrangle about with words. And we say things that we don't even know what we're talking about. Oftentimes, when we pick up the word of God, we... we we sometimes speculate as to what it really says. We don't always know what it says. And so oftentimes we have a quarrel around us because we're speculating on what the word says. But he says, don't do that. Matter of fact, as he continues on, he says, that is which is useless and it leads to the ruin of the hearers. He says, when you get a bunch of people together and you don't know sound doctrine, you don't know the word of God, then it, it just leads to the ruin of the hearers, meaning that you got a bunch of trifling, impious arguments going around. And what was happening in the, the church in Ephesus and surrounding Timothy's ministry was this, is there were a group of people, a handful of them, not a large, large group, but a handful of people that were proclaiming several things. One of the greatest things they were proclaiming is that the resurrection had occurred and Jesus' second coming was in fact a part of the resurrection. And so that there was no return of Jesus Christ. Now, you may not realize this, but that is a common teaching even today. It's called uh, amillennialism. Amillennialism is, is the idea. And so you have, and the goal of amillennialism is simply this 
is that Christ's return was during the days before Pentecost. And so you had the resurrection and the return. And so they would say the book of Revelation is simply a hypothetical thing. It's more um, of an illustration than it is a reality. Where you and I would say in our church, no, no, no. And the reason why is, is because we believe in a literal return of Jesus Christ. Not everybody teaches that and not everybody believes that. Paul actually knew that that was going around within the church. And he says, Timothy, you have to take a stand on this. There are other things that we know that are trifling arguments. There are some people who they believe wholeheartedly that in order to have salvation or to to be able to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it simply means by good works, that the better you are, that the more chance you have of, of having a relationship with God and ultimately going to heaven. We know and we teach that it's not by works, but it's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But that's an argument that's happening. Uh, there's arguments today as to whether or not the Bible is inerrant. Is it truly God's word? Is it truly 100% inspired? Is it really the truth? Or is it a group of uh, stories, fables that teach allegory and so many other principles that are good for morals and good for ethical behavior, but not really the truth of God's word? Whereas we would say, no, it's the inerrant word of God that is perfect, 100%, without flaw. That's the word of truth. It is the code of ethics in which we live by. It is the foundation of the believer. That's an argument that happens in so many churches. The Trinity. Does the Trinity exist? Is it really God the Father? Is it God the Son? Is it God the Holy Spirit? Do they have three distinct roles, but are they one person? That's an argument that happens in many churches. Is that really the case? Whereas we believe that the Trinity is God the Father. He's the master architect. He is the, he is the, the plan of all of the ages. We believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who created the world, who's spoken into existence, the very one who can take a human heart when it goes astray and he can recreate it and make it new. We believe in Jesus Christ as uh, that he said in, uh, in John that what He said, if I go away, I'm going to send a more suitable helper for you, that the Holy Spirit would live in your life. And so we believe that the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, is what Paul says. Why? So that we're governed and guided by the Holy Spirit. We're not left alone. God did not simply exist in the heavenly realms, leaving the church, the believer, the people, all by themselves. But he gives us a good guide, because he's a good God. Amen. And so those are trifling arguments that oftentimes lead to the ruin of the hearers. Can you imagine if we spent our time on Sunday mornings debating these truths? Could you imagine what it looked like if you were in a journey group with a handful of people and you didn't believe these core doctrinal issues? It would be a mess, wouldn't it? Huh? It would be confusing. It would be frustrating. And the bottom line is that's what Paul was urging Timothy to guard himself against. Guard yourself against impious thought guard yourself against truth verse 15 he says and be diligent to present yourself approved to god as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word truth that's a big task isn't it he says make sure that when you when you go to preach when you go to teach that you have accurately handled the word of god The word that's sharper than any double-edged sword. The one that will cut down to the bone and the marrow. Make sure that you have been approved before God. That when you handle it, that when you teach it, that you don't merely open it up and go, you know what, this is what I think it says. But discover the truths anew and then teach them according 
to the word of God, approved before Christ. I'll tell you why so many people uh, oftentimes have this challenge in churches, right? Many of the people want to be the pastor. Y'all ever know that? You know that? When it comes to decisions, y'all ever know that? But the scariest thing about a pastor is not the decisions that they make regarding land purchases. It's not the decisions they make regarding polity or how we're going to function. The scariest thing for a pastor is not handling the word of God accurately. It's a very serious matter. And it's one of the things that, unless you're called to be a pastor, I would rather just be a great servant for the cause of Christ. Amen? It seems a lot easier that way. Like, if, if I could just go, you know what, God? If I could just set aside my call and just serve you as a layperson, just, hey, if I could just go to the church and, and, hey, enjoy worship with the brethren, serve one service in our kids' ministry and go home, I'm like, praise God. But he's called us, called me, some of our pastors, to what? Equip you and handle the word of God with truth. And so that's the greatest call in my life. It's not always easy. Matter of fact, it wasn't easy for Timothy, but it was a clear call. Matter of fact, look with me. If you have your Bible open, just hold that spot and turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. So that's a book, the whole book ahead. If you didn't bring your Bible, we're going to put it for you up on the screen. But look what Paul says to him in the first letter that he writes. <coughs> As I urged you, Upon my departure from Macedonia, he says, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Sound familiar? Nor to pay attention to the myths and endless genealogies which have given rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. That's exactly what he's talking about here. And he wrote it in the previous book, one that was delivered to Timothy earlier. And he says, Timothy, stand firm, teach the word of God, handle it diligently. Why? So that you end mere genealogies and speculations. Don't allow people to lead the church astray with false teaching. Then he continues on. But the goal, verse 5, of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters which they are confident in their assertions. You see that? He goes, if you're not careful, there will be a group of people within the church over time that will crop up and they will lead people astray by fruitless assertions and by their own teachings in which they don't even know what they're saying. They're not confident in their truth. And they just babble on almost like fools. And he says, and Timothy, you have to guard yourself against that. Wow. And so as the church, do we have to guard ourselves against that? Yes, because we have a message to proclaim. We have a message that we should herald to the world. And that message is one of truth. One, that the Bible is truly God's word. That the resurrection did occur. That the Trinity does exist. That's what separates us, makes us Christians unique in our faith. And we should herald this, those things, preach those things diligently. The question is, is that, is that always easy? Is it always fun? Well, look at, look at this. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Okay, so flip back over. One previous chapter of what we've been looking at. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 7 again. So we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 1, 3 through 7. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, 3 through 7. And look what was happening 
in Timothy's life. <coughs> Paul said, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Paul says, I serve, and I'm serving well. I'm praying for you, Timothy. Verse 4 says, I'm longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. He says, I can remember the times that have been hard for you, Timothy. I recall your tears, and I'm praying for you, and and that you would be filled with joy, that I'm filled with joy. Verse 5 says, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother, Louis, and your mother, Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. The idea here is this. Paul is saying that there was a group of elders within the church who recognized the qualities within Timothy, that he had pastoral qualities, that he had a calling, and he says, I've seen it in you. He said, you got it with, with great uh, intensity, and you got it from your grandmother and your mother. And so they were dear women of the faith. You're a dear man of the faith. And so he says, press on. And he says, Verse 6, for this reason, I remind you to what? Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He basically says, Timothy, if I could pray for you right now, he said, I would, I would pray that, that God's word would fall fresh on you and he would rekindle the gift in which he's given you. Because here's what I want you to understand. Any ministry is difficult. Many of you in this room have been plugging away tirelessly since the beginning and the inception of our church. And if there was a one prayer that I could pray for many of you in this room, it would simply be that verse, that you would allow this, the freshness of God to fall on you, that he would rekindle your passions and your desires to minister for the gospel. And honestly, that's what you ought to be praying. If you don't pray for your pastors, that's one of the greatest things you could pray for. You could pray for our families, that God would protect us, and the other one is that he would keep us moving forward in ministry. Ministry's tough. It's hard. I'm not giving you that as a pity party because I'm not going anywhere. This is what God's called me to. But at the same time, it, it, there are days where you just want to throw your hands up. There are days where the sheep won't go the right direction, believe it or not. I know it's a... Ch- <laughs> there are days where you want to take your staff out and you want to beat the sheep instead of feed the sheep. And so you need to be praying for your pastors that we what? Stay sincere in our faith and we keep the main thing the main thing. Because here's the bottom line. When it becomes more about numbers within the church rather than people being equipped in the church, what you'll find is is that it brings out the worst in us. Because we no longer see you as people saved by God's grace wanting to move forward in your faith. But we see you as a group of people who's not doing what we need you to do. And you need to, you need to know that. You need to be praying that God guards our minds and our hearts against such things. Because our greatest desire is this, is that you would grow in sincere faith. That you would know the truth, the message that God has given us. And that we would be strengthened in our resolve to press on for the cause of Christ. And that's the greatest job I have, is to protect our church and to help us as sheep to move forward. Amen? But in verse 7, he gives this to Timothy. He says, Timothy, I see you growing weary. You're getting tired, and I know that. Then we have this verse, which we oftentimes apply to ourselves, right? And it says, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. Have you ever, have you ever quoted that verse? Well, you need to memorize it, okay? And he, he was giving a charge to his brother Timothy. 
And he says, Timothy, don't grow weary. Keep moving on. There's too much at stake for you to get off of your game. There's too much at stake for you to be sitting on the bench or to be in the game, but your head's not really in it. You ever seen a kid play the game? When I was growing up, I played t-ball. And um, I played almost every sport, but the, the problem with t-ball is that it didn't really interest me too much. I was more interested in playing football than t-ball. And so it meant as kids were running around the bases, instead of me taking a ball and tagging them, I would just tackle them. And if I wasn't doing that because they kept telling me, you know, you can't do that, you can't do that, then I would just resort to picking flowers in the outfield. But the bottom line is my head wasn't in it. Have you ever had a, a kid that they're in the game, but their head's just not in it? You ever seen that? That's what he's telling Timothy. He said, Timothy, yes, you're in the game, but your head's not in it. Dude, you don't even look like you're on the, the same team. Get with it. Allow God to inspire you. Rekindle the gift that God's given you and press on. Not in a spirit of fear. Not worrying about what men can do to you. Not worrying about what men can say about you. Because that's a real struggle in our communities. It is. It's one of the greatest struggles I had. I confessed that to you several weeks ago. One of the greatest fears I have is what men could say about me. And about what people can say about our church and how they can take something and, and literally just throw it out like wildfire and it's not even a truthful statement. It happens. But the bottom line is, is whether it happens or not, we have to press on for the cause of Christ. Verse 16 in 2 Timothy chapter 2. But he says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter. The word worldly there is the word called Babylos, which literally means profane. Avoid profane talk, empty chatter. Uh, empty literally means the word uh, kenophania. Okay? I know that was important to you, so write that down. <coughs> but it just means useless matters. So he says, make sure that you don't say profane things and make sure that you don't find yourself talking about useless matters. And you just see the repetition here. It seems to be what he keeps saying. He says, guard yourself against such things, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. He said, it'll be a cancer in your midst. It'll destroy the church. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but oftentimes what we see in our churches are things that spread like gangrene, and we call those non-essentials, meaning they're things that really don't even matter. And we often talk about that. Sometimes we ask the wrong questions. What's interesting about this and this particular context is that Paul is not talking about protect the church from useless, trivial matters, things that aren't really important, the non-essentials, but he's saying protect the church and make sure that you and they know the essentials, the core doctrinal issues. So he says make sure that you know that because why? There are some that their talk is spreading, and then he says among that group are Hymenaeus, and Philitus. He says those two guys are, are, are kind of taking you off course. Matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, which we were just reading a second ago, in verses 19 through 20, it says that some have rejected and suffered shipwreck according to their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who, what, I've handed over to Satan. Now, listen, you never, ever want your pastor to do that. <laughs> you understand? Man, I've been praying for them, but I finally just handed them over to Satan. 
Like, how far do you have to go? You know what I mean? That's the question I'm asking. Like, how, far, how bad does it have to get, you know? I mean, how many, how many issues do I mean, because listen, you don't hand somebody over your flock because you don't agree with the color of chairs. You got me? You don't hand somebody over your flock because you, you don't agree with the, the type of music or how loud or how soft the music's played. Does that make sense? Those are trivial things that oftentimes we make important. That's not what he's talking about here. He says, I've handed over these guys. I've rejected them because they're shipwrecked their faith because they're saying things that simply are not in line with the word of God. And he said, and for that, it's dangerous. And so that's the idea. And then verse 18, it says, men who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they've upset some of the faith. Do you think? I would say that would be pretty disturbing if there was someone. And listen, I want you to understand, this is more common within our churches than you know. There are many, many churches that teach amillennialism, that the resurrection is not happening. I know of several within about a 30-mile context. And so you need to know what it is that you believe. Is there going to be a literal resurrection? Did Jesus die? Did he come back for a brief time and then ascend into heaven? Absolutely. But in Revelation, when it says that he's coming back, is it going to be true? Yes, it has to be. And not just because I say so, but because the Old Testament says so. The Old Testament is saying that God loves his people Israel. And listen to me. There's going to be a day where he takes Israel and he's going to put a rod on their back and he's going to posture them towards him. And it's going to be a period called the seven-year tribulation. You don't have to know a whole lot about it, but here's the deal. Israel has rejected the Messiah. John chapter 1 says that what? Jesus lived among them. He tabernacled among his people, yet they rejected him. They did not know him. But there's going to be a time where Jesus is going to come back. And it's not simply for his church that's going to happen. But it's so that the people of Israel, what? Can see him and they'll be allured by him is what Hosea chapter 3 says. They'll be allured by him. That he will pull them to himself. That he's going to draw them to himself. And so that's the only hope of Israel. Did you know that? The hope of Israel is that they don't know it but that Jesus Christ is coming back. And so, do I believe in a literal reign? Yes. Does Paul believe it? Yes. Because he says, hey, quit listening to them as they talk about that. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19, you may be wondering, why should I believe in a literal resurrection? Should I believe in that? Well, let me explain why you should believe in a literal resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. I'll put it for you up on the screen. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead or of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. So meaning if, if that hadn't happened, then that means Christ and his resurrection is futile. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also in vain. Like if Christ was not resurrected, then you and I literally ought to be barbecuing right now for the Cowboys game later. You got me? There is no point in us being here. It is futile. Our attempts are useless. They are in vain. That is the idea. Then he says this, verse 15, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we've testified against what God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. In fact, 
the dead are not raised. And so he goes, even if you're preaching this and that didn't happen, then you're preaching the wrong message, which is the very thing we're talking about. Because he said, you need to make sure that you preach sound doctrine, right? And so here's the deal. Can you imagine the punishment that I will face if I'm preaching that Christ has been raised and in fact he had not been raised? That's dangerous. But Paul says, we preach because Christ has been raised. Matter of fact, look at Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You and I are still in our sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we've hoped in Christ and this life only, we are all of the men that are most to be pitied. Meaning that if we get up here and so dogmatically preach that Christ has been resurrected, that it is by him that we have our faith. It is by him that we have new life in Jesus Christ. And in fact, he hasn't been resurrected. He goes, your faith is futile. There is no hope for you. You'll never see all the loved ones that have gone before you. You'll never see them again because that's all hogwash. And he said, and the last one is this, you are most to be pitied. You're the laughingstock. And you don't even know it. So Paul believes in a literal resurrection. And he believes in a literal return. Amen? And so the question is, is how does the church get here? Like, how do they get to this point? Because here's what I want you to understand. They're just 30, 30 maybe 35 years removed from Christ. We are 20 centuries removed from Christ. And so you have... Uh, Hymenaeus, you have Philetus, you have Alexander, you have these guys who, according to Paul, is writing to Timothy and said they've been shipwrecked of their faith. How did they begin to erode that fast? Because there are guys who are still alive, like Luke, that actually have seen some of it, have seen some of these encounters. You have John who's still alive, a, a disciple of Jesus, and, and they're among these people that Though they're not close, they, they could actually hear and know. So the question is, how do they get off track? How do they erode over time? How is it that in, in literally 35 or 40 years, the church has already had things like this happen? How do you stay true to the mission and not get off on meaningless, meaningless conversations or quarrels? How, how do you protect yourself against Babylos or Kinophonia, useless arguments. Here's how. Look at verse 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. He goes, it's a house. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who, who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. You see that? So, like, here's the question. Does God know you? Absolutely. Does God know those who have put their faith in him? Yes. Is he surprised by anything you do? No. Does he know those who are his? Yes. He says, I am the vine. What? You are the branches. He says, I am the good shepherd and you are the sheep. John chapter 10 says, I am the what? Good shepherd and the sheep know my voice. I know them and they know me. In John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. A man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Meaning you can't be wicked if you know God. 
He says, I am the bridegroom and you are the bride. I am the head of the body and you are its parts. He says, I know you. I love you. I have a purpose in mind for you. Meaning that if you're the church, then he knows it. And he has a purpose and a plan for you and I. And you cannot be led astray. Why? Because he says it right there. Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. So what does that mean? It simply means that if God lives in you, you can no longer act the way you used to act. It means that God does not simply save someone and then allow you to remain where you are. Why? Because he loves you too much to leave you just the way you were. And so what's the product of the church, of God's people? It's that they get good gifts, we talked about last week. But they're also equipped to walk in truth, to use those gifts, and to grow up in Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, as we just kind of wrap up this text, there's four qualities that you'll see when the message of Christ is being preached within the church. And you'll see this within people's lives. Look at them. Here they are. In verse 20, it says, Now in a large house, that's the idea of God's kingdom. It's going to be a large house, folks, okay? There's going to be people that are there that you're like, Oh, wow, I didn't realize you were going to make it. And then there's going to be some that you're looking around and you're going to think, wow, where are they? For they did not make it. He says, it's built on a firm foundation. And then he says, there are are not only gold and silver vessels. That's the idea of utensils that are used within the house. Think of a, a large house and they have lots of great utensils. And he says, there's going to be some good ones, gold and silver ones. But there's also going to be vessels of what? (coughs) Wood and of earthware. Some that have honor and some that bring dishonor. So he goes, there are going to be utensils. Some are going to be used by God and some are not. That's the idea. He says that's how the house is going to work. And then he says this, 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Amen? So what does that mean? It means that if you give your life to Jesus Christ, it means that you have a conversion to God. Got me? So how does he know that you're his? How does he know who the saints are? How does he know who's a part of the church? Who who does he know that's a part of the vine, that's the sheep of the great shepherd? Because of a conversion to God. Amen? So conversion to God. We say at Stone Point all the time, we want to connect people to God, do you know what we really mean? If I could change it to another C word, we want people to have a conversion to God. We want people to know that he is the everlasting hope. He is the one that can take broken men and women, people who have messed their lives up on their own, have taken the car off the road, literally, and is having a struggle getting your life back on the road. He can take it, and he can mend what's been broken. He can take all those ditches, all those ruts in your life, And he can absolve them and put you on a firm foundation, one built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. He does that. Have we seen that happen? Absolutely. We celebrate that every single Monday night at Regen as we see people, numerous people, who their lives have been changed and they're working through um, their own recovery and reconciliation process with God and other people. Why? Because God's good and he's faithful. And he says, if you're mine, then people will know it. Then he goes on and he says this. 
22. As, as a result of a conversion to God, look at 22. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So what is the response of someone that has had a conversion to God? Well, they build the what? The character of God, the character of Christ. So is it possible, and this is the question that you and I have to answer, because this is a really essential part of our faith. Is it possible for someone to have a conversion to Christ and their character not change? Is it possible? Just think about it. Listen to it. This is an important question in which you need to drive to an important answer. Is it possible for someone to have a conversion to Christ and their character in Christ not change? Matthew 7, Jesus, if you want his word, said himself. What? You will know a man by his fruit or character. If God lives in them, then they cannot help but what? Live for God. Now, let me ask you a question. People ask me all the time, man, why do you talk about fruit so much? Why do you talk about gardening? Are you like, you love gardening? I'm like, I really don't love it. I don't really know that much about it, but it's all throughout the scriptures. You know, I mean, you're the vine, you bear fruit, you don't bear fruit. If, if you don't, you're going to be cut off and thrown in the pot. And I'm like, man, that sounds a lot like at my house. You just throw it in the fire. It's not doing anything, you know? So the question is, is will there be some barren seasons in which your fruit doesn't produce? Possibly. Possibly. Uh, this last year, the, the kind of the start of my gardening success and career was not ultimately real successful. But guess what? I trust that if I keep sowing and planting and watering, then it's going to get better. And that's the thing for us as Christians. The question is, if I've had a conversion to God, have I ever had fruit? And if you haven't ever had fruit, and I'm not talking about just a ooey-gooey feeling that, oh, I love God and I went to his church. I'm talking about if your character hasn't changed, then you have to ask a real question. Does God live in me? Am I his? Because if he is the great shepherd, then he'll change you. If you are connected to the vine, you will bear fruit. Why? Because a conversion to Christ means that you grow in character of Christ. And 23, it says, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Do you get the point? I mean, that's kind of the resounding thing, you know? Quit worrying about those things. And then he says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wrong. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. So the question is, is this, how do you and I know what's true and what's not? Well, after a conversion to Christ, you grow in character of Christ, you also grow in confidence in Christ. You're, you're trained. You grow in your knowledge. And that's what's the greatest thing about Christianity, is you grow up in your faith. Amen? Here's the problem. Listen to me. There's some that you've been in church for 30 years and you're not real competent. And the thing is, is this. It's okay if you decide I'm not going to stay there. The problem is, is that so many of us are content to stay there. Guys, I'm going to tell you something, and I say this in sincerity. This Bible is packed with so much good stuff. 
And I'm not just talking about like this kind of like surface level, God loves you, Jesus died on the cross for you. I'm talking rich in prophecy. Things that men and women of the faith, seven, eight, hundred, five, six hundred years before Christ ever came on the scene, were speaking of him. And if those things are true, then it has to change everything about the way we live. I spent uh, my Friday mornings at 6 o'clock with a group of men, and we're walking through a book called Hosea, uh, which is in, in the Bible. I'm also working through with my journey group that same book. And there are things packed in Hosea that if, if they're really true, which they've already come to fruition, history even shows you that, it has to change everything. Why? Because your conversion to Christ leads to character in Christ, and your character in Christ leads to a competency in his word. And when you get all that, you cannot help but overflow with God's goodness. And it changes everything. And I believe the more competent that you come in his word, and you know it, you're trained up and you're built in it, then guess what? The more character you have. Because when you totally believe that the way you live your life is built on something that's true, it helps. When you're kind of shaky about the Christian life and the Christian faith, and you're not really sure, do I really believe in all this? Is this really true? Then your character can waver. But when you believe that this is indeed the firm foundation, that you really are a part of God's house, and you're one of the silver and gold utensils that he's going to use, and you know it's built on truth, then you can't help but show the character of Christ because of what you know. Amen? And then he says this, and I love this part. He says, as he continues, verse 25, the latter part of it. Guys, I'm sorry if I throw you all off up there. But he says, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. He says this, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by those who do his will. So the idea of 25 and 26 is that the more you show character in Christ, competency in Christ, a conversion to Christ, verse 25, 26, the more you'll witness for Christ. And so that's the goal, is that you would share your story with other people. Why? Because 25 says, perhaps God may bring them to repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. Do you know why we live faithfully? Do you know why we don't just show up, sing a few songs, and then go out and do whatever we want to do? It's because we risk other people not seeing the true gospel. And listen, you cannot have an ethereal belief that you can love God and live the way you want. I don't like everything I read. I just don't. Why? Because outside of the Spirit, I find it rarely daunting. But with the Spirit, I see that I can walk according to His truth. And we live in a day, and I spoke about it several weeks back, a day of relativism. You believe what you want to believe. I believe what I want to believe. And as long as we can coexist and be okay, we're fine. But the bottom line is the Bible does not allow us as Christians to do that. The Bible says for you as Christians to stand in the gap. And like a quarterback that you're going to watch today, the good ones, the great ones, the Hall of Famers, they're going to get several hits in the rib, and they're going to complete passes that all of our other quarterbacks, the ones that aren't as good, the ones that are younger, they don't. Why? Because they're running for their lives. You understand what I'm saying? The good ones stand in and take a hit. The good ones, they're going to complete passes that you and I oftentimes go, 
How did that just happen? Do you understand? Here's what I know. The Texas Longhorns don't have a good one, okay? <laughs> Not yet, but hey, they're coming, okay? The Cowboys, contrary to any of your beliefs or speculations, they have a good one because he'll take some hits. And if he doesn't, he'll outrun them, okay? But as Christians, listen to me. And I say this in, in sincerity and in love and truth. There's so many of us in our Christian lives, we're running and we're fleeing and, and we're pursuing things that just don't honor God where we could stand in and we could take the hits. It may not always be fun, but the longer we take the hits and, and we take some that are, are shots, they're not always fun, but the more we stand in God's character because of our knowledge and competency of his word, the more that we grow in our conversion to God and we look more like him, the more that we can witness because people see that in difficult times in our lives, death, hardship, financial struggle, things that just don't always make sense, that we can still proclaim that God is good and that we can herald that his truth is real and it's changed our life. But the bottom line is this. God's word simply says that if you love him, you'll look more like him. And my prayer is, is that that would be true of our church. Why? Because that's the only message we have. I mean, I mean, think about it. It truly is the only message that we have. Here's the message, okay? God lives in me. He's changed me. I'm learning more about him and his word in hopes that I could share it with other people. If we'll all do that, then there will be two things that, that seem to happen. One you and I will be exactly where we need to be in our relationship with the Lord. We'll find peace and joy and contentment. And number two, people will be attracted to the very things that you teach. Amen? May I pray for you, church. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the message of hope that you've given us. I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us the strength to herald it and proclaim it. Father, I pray that we would stand for truth, sound doctrine, and as 1 Peter chapter 2 says, I pray that we would live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds and glorify you on the day that you visit us. So God, help us to live for you. Help us to be rooted in you. Help us to be built up in you. Help us to be strengthened in you so that we can overflow your goodness. We love you. and We thank you for your church. We thank you for your people that you've given good gifts to. And we thank you for the message that we can proclaim and herald throughout the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.